Praise the Lord. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We are going to read verses 20 through 25. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is eternal, that you are watching over it to perform it. We thank you, Lord, that you send it out to accomplish its purposes, and your purposes are never thwarted. Lord, I pray this morning that we would hear from your spirit. God, help me to communicate. Help me to clearly articulate what's going on in this passage and give us ears to hear. I pray that we would be encouraged. I pray we would be strengthened. And I pray, God, we would be changed by the power of your word. It's in the name of Jesus I ask it. Amen. Now, this particular patch of scripture is a patch of scripture that I have heard my entire life. Very, 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 very familiar with it. Heard it a lot. And the way that I grew up thinking about it is different than the way I think about it today. So part of the sermon is going to reflect that. There's two things that I need to address this morning. There are two ditches that people can get into in this passage of Scripture. So let's remind ourselves of where we're at and what's going on. Remember last week what we talked about was Jesus walking into Jerusalem and on his way to Jerusalem he sees a fig tree with leaves and it doesn't have figs. Jesus comes up to the tree and says nobody's going to eat from you ever again. They walk into the city. Remember Jesus overturns the tables He deals with all of that that's going on in the temple. He's pronouncing judgment. That was what was going on last week. The fig tree is a representation of Israel. We went through all of that last week, and he is coming in and physically showing the Jewish people where they have missed the mark, overturns the tables, tells them, my house is a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. And then he leaves. The next morning, they come to the fig tree, and Peter does what you would do if you saw a fig tree withered up from the roots that just 24 hours ago was green. You would do exactly what Peter said, and you would, you would say, whoa! That's not what it says in the Greek, but that's, that's, that's in essence what Peter is saying. He is saying, 
Look, what? What? That's, that's what Peter's doing. He cannot believe what he's seeing. Jesus told the tree yesterday, nobody's going to eat from you again. And now today, the tree is dead. Withered from the roots. And Jesus' response to that is really what the, the words, there's just three of them, four of them. Have faith in God is how Jesus responds to Peter being blown away by what he sees. And then Jesus goes on to say some things that are incredibly unbelievable. Because he, he follows that up with, you think that's something? That this tree dies? Have faith in God. Because I say to you, truly I say to you, look at verse 23, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown in the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it'll be done for him. Now remember, they're standing on a mountain. They're looking down in the Kidron Valley at the temple. If they're standing here by the tree, that's where it was. They're looking over at the Temple Mount area. They're, they're on, there's a mountain and there's a mountain. Now, there's some people that believe that this reference to a mountain is a reference to uh, one of King Herod's, he'd used slave labor to move a whole mountain over, to, to build, and they think it's a reference to that and it's judgment. And that's what this is all about. I don't think that's what it is. It's interesting to think of. But they are on a mountain. So Jesus is using the moment where they're at, the fig tree, and the mountains where they're at. And he says, if you say to the mountain, be taken up and be thrown into the sea, and, and don't doubt, but believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done. And then he gives a general explanation for what that looks like. Therefore, I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it. That is a definition of faith. I believe that I have what I've prayed for, even though I don't see what I've prayed for. It will be done. It will be yours. So how's this working for everyone? I already know the answer to that. I know the answer is this radical commitment to prayer and faith in God is not something that most people go, oh yeah, every time I pray it happens. But this verse certainly sounds like it should be happening that way. So I want to talk about that. And what, what I've got to address, and it's, I feel like I'm on a wave board that's going like this. And so the whole sermon is going to feel like this to me and probably to you, where I want to address two sides that I think go wrong. Side number one is God is sovereign. God is in charge. God's in control. Therefore, when I pray, I really just toss up a prayer to say that I prayed and get it and then I log it in, and God can see I did my duty, check, he said a prayer, but I don't really expect anything to happen, because after all, he's in charge and he's in control, therefore there's really no expectation on my part. I just say some words and then move on with my life. That is wrong. 
The other ditch is the way that I grew up, which says the only reason your prayers aren't answered is because you didn't do Mark 11, 23, and 24 correctly. You didn't believe enough. You had doubt. And we have all these checklists for why the prayer isn't answered. Because there's so many prayers that go unanswered, we have to have a reason for it. So we have all these lists. You had unforgiveness. Look at verse 25. You had sin in your life. You, you said a confession that went sideways to what you said initially. So that's evidence that you didn't believe. So, so that's why it didn't work. You, you did this and you did that or you didn't do this. And what we, what we did when I was growing up, whether we knew we were doing it or not, is created a formula, a button to push, a lever to pull. You say the prayer this way. I mean, it says it right here. What, whatever you desire when you pray, it's yours. It says it. It just says it. So how can you challenge that? It just says it. Okay. Let me give you an illustration. If that's what Jesus means, why aren't you praying to have Superman's powers? And I am not joking. Why aren't you praying to have Superman's powers? Can't he jump over a building in a single leap? Faster than a speeding bullet? Wouldn't that be useful to get the gospel around the world at supersonic speed? Has anybody ever considered praying for Superman's powers? Or if you prefer Aquaman, you want to talk to the fish? Why haven't you prayed for Aquaman's powers at the beach so you could tell the shark that almost ate me last year to go away? Why aren't you asking for that? Why do we know instinctively that what I'm saying right now is ridiculous? No, seriously, why is it ridiculous? Something in you says, Pastor Steve, that's ridiculous. That cannot be what Jesus means. It can't mean that I, if I believe enough and I don't doubt and I say, I'm going to fly and I get up on top of this roof and jump off, I'm probably going to the hospital or the morgue. Why do we know that instinctively? This is an important question. Because Jesus said, again, have faith in God. If you say to the mountain, be removed, because let's be honest, a mountain being picked up out of the dirt and thrown into the ocean is a big deal. It is a supernatural thing. Now, in regard to that, that's a metaphor. The Jewish people would have understood it as a metaphor. Most preachers understand it as a metaphor. Most commentaries understand it as a metaphor. That what Jesus means here is that the mountain in your life, the obstacle, something that's going on. Most people, even when I was growing up, is the way we preach it. I never heard anybody advocate for a literal mountain going into the literal sea. But I did hear, and there are many who believe, that if you have enough faith, you can have anything, and every time your prayers are guaranteed to be answered. So if the Superman thing automatically says, okay, that's ridiculous, there must be some kind of qualifier around this passage of Scripture. This is true for all of Scripture. When you take a verse and you lift it up and you say, here is the verse, just these verses, and this verse is how I'm going to interpret all of the Scripture. That is not the way that we interpret Scripture. We take all of the verses and we take 
what the entirety of the verses are saying, and we say, okay, Jesus said here that we can tell a mountain to go into the sea, and if you don't doubt your heart and you believe it, it'll happen. So what does that mean? Let me give you some what I believe are qualifiers to that. I want you to turn, uh, first of all, 1 John chapter 5. This is super important. And it's John, who was here, by the way, he saw the fig tree, the guy that wrote this. What we're about to read is going to sound very similar to what we find in Mark. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence, this is the faith, this is the trust that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. If we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know we have the request we have asked of Him. This sounds very similar to Mark 11, 23, and 24. What John is saying, though, in this verse is that if we ask according to His will, He hears us. And if we know, that is, that is a direct reference to faith. If we know He hears us, then we also know we have faith that it is going to be done. What is the qualifier in this verse? According to His will. Let me talk just briefly about the will of God. I think the Bible teaches there are three ways to look at the will of God. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but you can come talk to me if you have questions. I think the first, most difficult part of the will of God to understand is what we would call His secret will. For example, does anybody know when Jesus is coming back? Do you believe He's coming back? He's coming back. We don't know when. It is in the secret will of God, and nobody is ever going to know. But his secret will would be a reference to his purposes in the earth to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. For example, you don't have to turn there. Psalms 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And I want to read, I don't have this scripture for you, Daryl, but I'm going to read Isaiah 46 verses 9 through 11. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not done. God declares the end from the beginning. The Bible says that Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. We are not operating on plan B. We are operating on God's purpose. Listen to the next verse declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. God is not thwarted 
by humans. Your decisions, your sins, your mistakes, your utter ridiculous actions are not messing up God's purpose. Now, you may be bruised up and in pain going through your life because of your choices and decisions and sins, but they're not thwarting the purpose of God. In fact, God is going to accomplish His purpose the way He wants to accomplish it, and He's going to go through every one of those mistakes, sins, and failures and accomplish His purpose. Joseph told his brothers, you meant it for evil, he meant it for good. Not he used it, he meant it. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good that many might be saved. And the most important reference that I could ever give is the crucifixion of Jesus, which in the very first sermon after the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, you men with lawless hands took up the Lord of glory and crucified him, which was according to the eternal predestined purpose of God. God determined that lawless hands would take the Son of God and to the cross and crucify Him, committing the most heinous sin that's ever been committed was a part of the plan of God. Now, that is a deep rabbit hole to go down into. I'm not going to go down into it. I just want you to hear that God is accomplishing His purposes, but we don't know what all those purposes are. And we're never going to know. That would be His secret will. But there is something we do know, which is His moral will. His moral will is do not cheat, do not lie, do not steal. Do not commit adultery. His moral will is pray, trust, have faith in God. That is His moral will. You clearly know when you break it, and you clearly know when you do it. He has a moral will. And he has a permissive will. And the permissive will is probably the thing that messes us up the most in that God allows you to be an idiot. He allows you to make free choices that are contrary to his moral will. He, if you want to commit sin, he allows you to do it. Now there are places in the Bible where God prevents people from committing sin. Like Sarah was not taken into the harem by Pharaoh because God prevented it from happening. That's another rabbit hole. But there is the secret will of God, there is the moral will of God, and there is His permissive will. So John tells us that if we ask anything according to His will, he hears us. And if we know that He hears us, then we know we have whatever we've asked. It's the same kind of, the same kind of statement that Jesus made. Whatever you ask, believing, without doubting, you will have. John says, if you know that He hears you, that's the same thing as saying, I believe in God and I believe He hears me. Then you also know that you have what you prayed for. The qualifier here is, it's got to be according to His will. Mark chapter 14, verse 34. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, listen to the way this happens. You can see it. He fell on the ground. Jesus is facing the cross. 
He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He falls on his face and prayed, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. That is Mark recording for the reader that Jesus falls on his face and says, well, I haven't read what he said, but Mark is telling you, if it's possible. Verse 36, and he says, Abba, which is Aramaic, Daddy. Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup. Remove it. Yet not what I will, but what you will. What kind of prayer is that? Now you've heard it, it's used so much that this goes into the white noise of Christianity. You've heard, not my will be done, but his. You've heard it so much that it's easy to dismiss it, but put yourself here. Listen to Jesus pray. All things are possible, including me not dying this way. All things are possible, including a different plan of redemption. That is the implication. All things are possible. Why is that the first thing he says? Because what he's asking for is for this cup, and by the way, the cup he drank was the wrath of God for the sin of mankind. Nobody is qualified to drink this cup. Nobody's qualified to be in this position other than the Son of God. He is asking you, Father, all things are possible with you. Let this cup pass from me. But not my will. In this moment, as as God the Son incarnate in the flesh, in fear and trembling, approaching the idea of taking the wrath of God on myself for the sin of the world, I am looking for another way, if it's possible. But not my will be done, yours. The qualifier to a prayer to the God of all things that are possible is, Lord, your will must be done. John tells me that his will, I've got to ask according to his will. That's how I know that he hears us. Here's Matthew chapter 6. The disciples are instructed how to pray. You may have heard it at a football game. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, finish it for me. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give me this day. Give us this day our daily bread. I always personalize it. But give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The most famous prayer in the Scripture, the Lord's Prayer, it instructs us that a part of the prayer is that His will would be done. Qualifier number one, I am saying to you this morning, to these kind of prayers that Jesus tells us to pray in Mark chapter 11, the qualifier is it has to be according to his will. But that's not the only thing I think Scripture teaches about prayer. James chapter 4 tells us something else. James is like the book of Proverbs in the New Testament. It's just imperative after imperative, do. Do, don't. Some people really like the book of James because of that. Daniel is one of them. 
And he gives a really good explanation in James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. Remember, we talked about this with abortion. You covet, you, you want what other people have, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, that is a weird thing to get thrown in the middle of this. Right in the middle of him saying, your passions are out of control, murderers and stealers and coveters. And the reason you don't have stuff is because you don't ask. What? The very next line. You ask and do not receive. So some of you are asking. And the reason you don't receive is because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James has addressed both sides. James is addressing and telling us that there is a qualifier to your asking. And that asking is, if you are desiring to have what you're praying for in a selfish way that's for you, then, and specifically to spend it on your passions, which he's just told us are out of control and covetous in nature, and I want prosperity and blessing and favor, and I want these things, and I look for these things, and, and people on TV tell me I can have these things. James tells me, you're not getting these things because you want to spend it on your passions. But then he also said, wait a second, the person who says, well, God's in charge, he's sovereign. Pastor Steve just went through those verses, so I don't have to pray. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. Do you see that, the, that both sides are being addressed? James is addressing both of us. He is telling us that you've got to have faith and ask. That's what Jesus said. And he's telling us, you can't be asking in such a way that you are desiring it for your passions to be satisfied. Now, I don't have time this morning to just say everything I would like to say, but it does bring up a good question. How do I know when my passions are out of control and how do I know that they're not? How do I know? Because, listen... Let me just, because I'm going to get practical in all this. This is not a theoretical sermon. If, if, my, if I'm diagnosed with cancer tomorrow, and that could happen, the desire of my heart is for God to heal me. Doesn't that inherently mean it's for me? Does that automatically mean that my passion is wrong? No. It doesn't mean that. Could it mean that? Yes. Does it automatically? No. If one of my children are in trouble and I'm earnestly praying before God, isn't that to the benefit of me because it's my child? Well, yes. Does that mean my passion is wrong? No. So, so there are... That's a, that's a, that's a question that, that we could get into at another time. But what I want you to see is, is that the qualifiers around the prayer that Jesus is telling us to pray are that we've got to pray according to his will, and we've got to pray in such a way that it's not meant for selfish, covetous passions. So prayers that are prayed the right way, according to his will, are going to be answered. I want to redirect everybody to the very first thing Jesus said. Have faith in God. It is my intention this morning as we go through this and try to dissect the both sides, 
that we will come out on the other end with a greater confidence to ask. Because there's probably a greater number of us that are just letting life roll right over top of us without asking very much. But let's go in so we can understand. If God's will is the issue that we've got to qualify our prayers with, how do I know what His will is? His will is found in His Word. His will is found in His Word. But His secret will is not found in His Word. His purposes are not found in His Word. Do you remember what God told Job when Job started waxing philosophical with the sovereign king of the universe about his suffering and affliction? How many of you know the book of Job is 42 chapters of suffering? And he asks, God asked Job, where were you when I set the foundations of the universe? Who is this that darkens counsel without knowledge? Is what God told Job. Who do you think you are? I'm God. I set the boundaries of the sea. And I set the boundaries of the suffering you're going through. Who do you think you are, Job? That's what God's saying. At the end of Job, he gets everything back and then some. Okay. If God's will is a parameter around Mark 11, 23 and 24, and I don't always know what His will is, but I do know what His will is in the Word of God, how, how do I look at this? What does it say about things that I typically pray for? In particular, issues that involve suffering. And I just want you to see, because part of our prayers are frequently to get out of problems. Right? Our prayers are frequently to get out of issues, circumstances, sicknesses, financial problems. We're always trying to get out of them. And I'm going to tell you, that's totally fine. But I want you to hear what Scripture says about those problems. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice. This is a reference to salvation. Though now for a little while, listen, now for a little while, if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness, genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying that you may be grieved by various trials. So he's not limit, he's just got a broad category. Fill in the blank. What are you going through? If necessary. Who's in charge of necessary? It's not me. I, I don't, as your pastor, say, okay, Leanna, I have deemed it necessary for you to go through a trial, so I've asked the Lord to give you cancer. That's obviously ridiculous. I'm not in charge of necessary. None of us are in charge of necessary. Most of us are not looking in the mirror in the morning and saying, I think it's necessary that I lose my job this morning and go bankrupt. I think it's necessary this morning that all my coworkers hate me. 
meet me in the parking lot and beat me up because I said something about Roe versus Wade. I think, it, I think that's necessary. None of you are going to do that. And yet, Peter says that we rejoice in our salvation. Those are the verses prior. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. God is in charge of necessary. And here's how I know it's God that's in charge of what's necessary because of verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith. We're talking about faith. We're talking about trusting God, which is more precious than gold. Your faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Gold perishes, but your faith doesn't when it goes through fire. That faith is found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The trial, the various trial that God may deem necessary for your life is causing you to shine brighter in your faith, is what he's saying. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been, this is one that doesn't show up on our refrigerators. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The context of Philippians 1.29 is persecution. Excuse me. It's been granted to you. Merry Christmas. It's been given to you. It's been granted to you. It has been granted by God that not only that for the sake of Christ you should believe in Him, but that you should suffer for His sake. Sheesh, Pastor Steve. Acts chapter 14. 21 through 22. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We must. We're granted to suffer. It may be necessary to suffer. And here it says we will, we must. James chapter 1, maybe the most famous of these at all. Count it all joy, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. All kinds of trials. He's being generic because you can plug in your trial. Not everybody goes through the same stuff. There are mental trials. There are emotional trials. There are physical sicknesses that are trials. There are roadblocks that are directly related to people. There are all kinds of trials, various trials, we are to count them as joy. That the testing of your faith, do you see why, I'm, why am I talking about this? Because it is connected to our faith that Jesus told us to have. He said, have faith in God. And he's telling me that these trials that we are frequently praying about and wondering, why isn't God getting rid of this? This is some answers. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There is something happening. Now these are theoretical, not theoretical, these are statements, 
across the scripture in the New Testament telling me that suffering in various ways is guaranteed. Why is that important? Because Mark 11, 23 and 24 says, if you desire something and you don't doubt and you believe it, you can have it. So when you're going through a trial and you don't doubt and you believe and you pray and it doesn't happen, what happened? Let me give you some more examples here. I just want to, I'm probably just going to give you one. Galatians chapter 4. This one is where my life started to change. Because I grew up believing that if I just had enough faith, there's not going to be any trials. Or all trials were me trying to overcome the thing that I shouldn't have. I shouldn't be sick. I shouldn't be poor. I should only be blessed. I should only be successful. I should only be prosperous. I should only be happy. Only, ever, only, ever. In any deviation from that, something is deficient in my life. I'm doing something wrong. That's the reason I'm spending all this time. Because the Bible doesn't teach that. Men teach that. The Bible tells me, you're going to suffer. But the Bible tells me, also, also, other ditch, have faith in God. You can tell a mountain to jump into the sea and it will. The Bible tells me that. And all through these suffering scriptures, you notice that faith is in there. Faith is in there. It's growing. It's getting stronger. It's to the praise of His glory. But the suffering is guaranteed in there to make the faith stronger. In particular, what, what I grew up with was that you should always be healed. You should always be healed. There's never a place for sickness. Galatians chapter 4, verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. What? A bodily ailment? Caused you to preach the gospel? And though my condition was a trial to you. My bodily ailment was not a backache. My bodily ailment was so severe that it was a trial for you to keep care of me. Anybody ever taken care of a sick family member? You know what that is like. My condition was a trial to you. You did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. You took such good care of me, it was like, an angel or Jesus himself were here. You loved me, Galatians. You took care of me. You did not take my sickness and my trial as a, as a thing to be scorned. And he's upset with them. Verse 15. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? Many scholars believe that Paul had a condition that was very prevalent in the first century that dealt, dealt with the eyes and that he was temporarily blind, not like he was in the book of Acts, but he had a disease in his eyes and he couldn't see where he was going and he was totally dependent. I don't know if that's true. It doesn't tell us. It just tells us that whatever sickness he had caused him to be in such a state that he couldn't leave and they had to take care of him. So why didn't he execute the faith principles of Mark 11, 23, and 24. Why didn't he do it? 
Did he not know that he's not supposed to be sick? Timothy is left, or excuse me, Timothy is told to take a little wine for the sake of his stomach, for his frequent ailments. Why didn't Paul instruct Timothy to execute the principles of Mark 11, 23, and 24? Trophimus was left ill at Miletus. Just left him. Why did Paul do that? If Trophimus was such an important part of the missionary journey of Paul, and the missionary journey is hindered because he's sick, why didn't Paul just execute the principles of Mark 11, 23, and 24? What things whoever you desire when you pray, believe you receive them, you'll have them. Why didn't he do that? Because, as we've been saying this morning, the will of God is involved. And the will of God involves suffering, setbacks, and difficulties, which may include finances, sickness and disease, or people problems. There is no limit to what the difficulties may be. But I'm not leaving you here in this place where it's like, good grief, this is depressing. I'm just trying to show that scripturally, Jesus did not mean in Mark 11, 23 and 24 that you'll never be sick and you'll never have problems and you should always overcome. It's always going to work this way if you have enough faith because the sole focus of that belief is you. You have to have the faith. God's done all that He's going to do. That is not what Scripture says. If necessary, we may go through things, but there is always a purpose. Always a purpose. I can't read all of my Scriptures. I'm going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. Now let's stop. We know what this is about, right? How many have heard the thorn in the flesh? We don't know what the thorn is. I'm not going to, nobody knows. It doesn't matter what it is. We do know that it's a messenger from Satan. So it's unpleasant, whatever it is. And there's something confusing in here. Because it says it was given to him to keep him from becoming conceited. Right before this, he says, I was caught up into the heavens and I heard things unlawful for a man to ask. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of these revelations I'm getting, the Apostle Paul, a messenger of Satan was given to me to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Who sent the messenger of Satan? Do you think Satan is interested in Paul being humble? Think of, think of, what, think of what that would mean. Satan doesn't want Paul to become conceited. So he sends him a messenger of Satan. That's not what this says. A messenger was given to him to keep him from being conceited. The messenger is a divine permission from God to, like Job, when Satan implored, he wants to go and he wants to show that Job is not what God thinks he is and God says, have at it. Same thing here. God is directing a messenger of Satan to buffet him, to harass him, to keep him from becoming conceited. The next verse, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this. He is praying. He is pleading. 
that it should leave me. But he said, God's answer to his cry, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Now we have some purpose for suffering. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now look at Paul's response. He doesn't say, I am so glad that's how I got rid of the thorn. There is no mention of the thorn leaving. But the very next verse says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The lesson that he learned is that there was purpose that God was drawing Paul closer to himself in weakness and then turning around and dumping power on the Paul's life. And so Paul learns from that, it is better to boast in my weakness because in this weakness, I go out and preach and people get saved. I go out in this weakness and I lay hands on the sick and God, through His sovereign will, uses me to see people healed. God uses me to minister and the power of Christ is on me in this weakened state. Therefore, I will boast in that weakness. There is purpose in the sufferings that we go through. There is a strengthening of faith, a Faith that is more precious than gold is coming to the praise and the glory of God because you are having faith in God in the middle of a trial. But that doesn't address the kind of weakness that we all have in prayer. So I spend all that time talking about what I used to think. And let me come over to where we are today and say, we have to have faith in God through suffering and through difficulty because Jesus still said, you look at this mountain and tell it to jump in the sea and if you don't doubt and you believe it, it's going to happen. This verse is still here. Now I have said there's a biblical qualifier which is the will of God. And it may be the will of God for you to be sick, but it may be the will of God for Him to heal you. It may be the will of God for something radical to happen. In fact, you're not going to know if you sit back, cross your arms, and say, maybe it's up to God. I'm not going to do anything. Because part of the will of God is accomplishing His will through you, which means through your faith and through your prayer, which means we are not praying enough or correctly. We are praying in such a way that we just say that we did it. We're not praying in a way that we believe that He's the God of the impossible. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can't just get away with casual Christianity. You've got to believe. For who, Listen to how he says it. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and... He rewards those who seek Him. Now James told us that you don't have because you asked to spend it on your pleasures. The author of Hebrew tells us you've got to ask Him believing He's a rewarder. You've got to approach God that He is good 
and a rewarder. All this talk that I just did on suffering is to highlight that suffering is a part of the Christian life and that it qualifies what's going on in Mark 11, 23, and 24. However, what should not be qualified away is the reality that faith has to happen in our life where we trust Him for radical things. James says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. We're told to have faith for healing and part of the life of the church and pray. Let me end here. Luke chapter 18. It's not noon yet, so we're, we're getting close. Luke chapter 18, 1 through 8. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared not God nor respected man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. You get the picture of what this widow is like? She won't quit. She keeps knocking and asking. She keeps seeking. She keeps asking. She keeps knocking on the door. She won't quit asking. She won't let it go. She's like the three-year-old in the supermarket, tugging on mommy's dress. I want the lucky charms. 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 And eventually, mom, who's committed to a diet without sugar, buys 12 boxes of Lucky Charms to get the kid to quit. That is not the parable Jesus used, but that is this one. That is what is happening here. This guy says, I don't fear God. I don't respect people. But this lady is going to beat me down by her continual coming. Jesus says, listen to how he says it. The Lord says, verse 6, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Do you hear how an unrighteous judge talks? And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Yes, he will. He will find faith on the earth. But he's just told me what this faith looks like. Let me wrap up everything I'm trying to say in this. Church, have faith in God. Here is the way that faith is expressed. I am going to ask God like a little kid pulling on mom's skirt. I am going to ask and ask and seek until I either get an answer or I know that the answer is no. 
I'm saying everything I said about suffering and about having this radical faith to say, I need to pray without ceasing. I need to bombard heaven. The old Pentecostals had a phrase. They called it praying through. Anybody heard that before? They prayed through. What they meant was they grabbed the horns of the altar of prayer and they did not let go until there was an answer. Now the answer could be no. That's why I spent all that time showing biblically the suffering part. The answer could be no. And if it is no, you now know that there is purpose in the suffering and God is still growing your faith. But you can't take that and then say, I'm never going to see an answer. You have got to learn to grab a hold of God and not let go and ask and seek and find. That's what Jesus said would happen. Here he tells us, Because this unrighteous judge answered the widow, God, who is the righteous judge of the universe, will do what is right. So we should dream big dreams and say, I will have faith in God. I will trust in God. I will seek God until there's an answer. If one of my kids got sick, I would pray. I mean really sick. A sickness like cancer. If that were to happen, I want to tell you how I would pray. Pastor Steve, you said it could be God's will. It could be. It could be. But I don't know that. So I'm going to pray and seek Him. I am going to go after God and not let go and not give up. And if God's answer is no, and they pass away, then He is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He has purpose in this moment, and I'm going to learn from it through incredible pain, through incredible difficulty, through tears and weeping and whys and all of those things that we go through. But I am going to have faith in God and trust in His Word that He says your faith more precious than gold is going to be to the glory of God. When you have problems with relationships, there's marriage problems, there's all kinds of issues, you can't just say, Well, it must be God's will for us to divorce. It must be God's will for us to just walk away. It's your responsibility to grab a hold of God and pray and say, I'm not giving up. That is what faith does. It doesn't let go. So is it wrong to think it's always going to be exactly the way you prayed? Yes. Is it wrong to think that it's never, you just say a prayer and you go about your life? Yes, that is equally wrong. Have faith in the God of impossible things. Pray big, crazy prayers. Believing. Trust God's faithfulness and His goodness in all of His answers, whatever they are. Seek Him day and night. That's what this verse says with the widow. Do not let go. We have daily prayer for daily bread. And here's maybe the part that I want to just will conclude with. Expect yes. Trust Him when it's no. Expect a yes. But trust Him when it's no. He will get you through and He has purpose in doing so. Let's everybody stand up. Let's bow our heads if you would.
A sermon like this can generate lots of questions, and that's wonderful. I am free to talk to anybody that wants to talk. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. Lord, I submit the sermon to you. You are the God who answers incredible prayers. You are the God that told us that if we believe and do not doubt, we will have it according to your will. And Lord, I ask this morning that you would help us to have greater confidence in faith, that we would not passively sit back and wait for something to happen. But Lord, we would recognize it's our responsibility to pursue you because you use our prayers to accomplish your will. God, fill this room with hope. Fill this room with expectancy. Lord, that you are the God who answers prayer. And when it's no, we are comforted by the love and the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray this week we would shine like lights in a dark place. I pray that we would be courageous and bold. I pray, God, we would be an encouragement to others. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Church, you are officially dismissed. are dismissed to grab one of these flyers from Ken and fill that out and bring it back next week about Sunday school.